Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 tells us the man had relations with his wife Eve. We're not talking about relatives, we're talking about they, they were intimate together and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now the word Cain, the name Cain means gotten. So when she says, I've gotten a man-child, you'll notice this in, in Hebrew scriptures, in Old Testament scripture, that, that the names oftentimes are explained right in the same verse that the name is given. But we sometimes miss that and don't see it. But the name Cain simply means gotten. Now understand here that Eve is experiencing a case of mistaken identity. She has misunderstood the potential of her son. She apparently thinks that Cain is God's promised seed. Now, for a moment, I've, I've got to ask you to step away from the flannel graph version of, of Scripture. I don't know how many of you remember flannel graph. I grew up on flannel graph. That was little flannel cutouts of Bible characters that people would put, you know, it was, it was early video. You know, that's, that's how they used to teach. And a lot of times we look at biblical characters one or two dimensionally. We see them as flat. We don't think about their emotion. We don't think about their lives, what's happened to them. As you look at Adam and Eve, you've got to think of them as real flesh and blood people with emotions. When they were driven out of the garden, covered by the animal skins that God covered them. Remember last week, for those of you here who are here, we talked about that was the first sacrifice. The first animal sacrifice is seen in Genesis 3. And God took, made that animal sacrifice to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And animal sacrifice since then has been for the same purpose of covering the shame of man. But Eve and Adam are driven out, and then Eve becomes pregnant. Now, this is the first pregnancy. So, the way I read it, I'm not even sure that Eve really understood what all was going on. It was just, I'm not eating, but I'm getting bigger, and I don't know why. And when ultimately she gave birth to Cain, it was a miraculous, stunning, awe-inspiring moment. As it is for any woman who gives birth to a child. There is nothing like it, says the man. There's nothing like it. Having been there myself and watched it and talked with my wife about her emotions, her feelings. But Eve goes through this. Now you've got to remember, Eve is in her life. And like all of us in our lives, we take all the experiences of our lives and we put them all together. Well, Eve has this experience of having been driven out of the garden. And if you look back in Genesis chapter 3, read, listen to what she was told. In verse 15, she hears God cursing the serpent. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now again, last week we talked about the fact that women don't have seeds. This is an, a, a miraculous indication. In fact, it's called the Proto-Evangelicum, or First Gospel. It's the first mention of the Gospel. It's where God says, I'm going to bring a seed from the woman, which is a miracle. Because again, women don't have seeds. But I'm going to bring a seed from the woman. And this seed is going to be a savior. This seed is going to bruise the head of the serpent. So, fast forward. Here's Eve. She's now pregnant. She gives birth. And she says, I've gotten, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She thinks that the promise of God is fulfilled in Cain. Well, how do we, how do we really know that? Well, listen to the, to the Hebrew sentence. Where she says, Eve says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. We have a whole sentence. Eve just said three words. She said, and I quote, Cana ish Jehovah. In other words, I have gotten a man, the Lord. My version says, with the help of the Lord. That's an addition. 
That's not the original language. What Eve said is, I've gotten a man, the Lord. This is it. The miraculous birth, right here. And this child, this child is going to bruise the head of the serpent. This is it. I've gotten a man, the Lord. Here he is. He is the answer. But Cain was not the answer. Cain was anything but the answer. Cain was far from the answer. And it didn't take Eve long to figure that out. Look at verse 2. It says, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Let's stop right there. Let me just point out to you. When Abel was born, I think that it's possible that Cain was old enough that Eve already realized that Cain was not the answer. Okay? And it doesn't take long for these little angels that, that, that we have as our small children to become anything but angelic. We start to realize as they scream through the night, the selfishness. We begin to see as they steal the cookies from the jar that these kids are not born with sweetness and innocence. They're not born with you know, the grace of God. They're not born perfect little angels, except maybe when they're sleeping. My kids, when they're asleep, are the three most angelic children in the world. I love going in the rooms and looking at them when they're asleep. Because they're not doing anything. They're just there. Perfect. They don't talk back to me when they're asleep. I love that. The rest of the time, it's a little more of a challenge. I mean, think about it. The Bible says, Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Why? Because the way we should go is not the way we naturally go. And if you have children, you know this to be true, which is why Jesus said we need to be born again. Parents need to train their children. How many parents need to train their children on how to lie? How, how many of us have trained our kids on how to steal, on how to be selfish, on how to be rude? These are things that they come about very naturally. But to love people, to, to seek reconciliation, to ask permission, to express love, these are things that are taught. These are things that we learn. Folks, the fruit of the Spirit is not developed by working the ground, as we will see in the life of Cain. The fruit of the Spirit is grown in the heart of a person who is born a second time. Listen to Jesus' words, John chapter 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Now, what's interesting is when Abel comes along, Abel's name is actually vanity. That's what Abel's name means. Vanity or emptiness. In other words, Eve has Cain, gotten. I've gotten a man, the Lord. This is it. He's the one. And she begins to raise Cain and to figure out that she is raising Cain and that he's not really what she thought he was. And then she gets pregnant again and she's like, emptiness, vanity. It's hopeless second child she has already, Eve has lost hope. Wow. You know, I think there's probably another name for Abel, really, and that would be the name Ben. Short for Ben there, done that. You know, I've had a child. I, and, and look at how he turned out. Now this is just another one. Vanity. Abel. So, here comes Eve. She has now had two children, and she still had no idea the pain that Cain was about to bring. Verse 2, look at the second half of the verse. It tells us that Abel was a keeper of the flocks, a shepherd, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. I don't know about you, but that's always bothered me. Doesn't seem fair. Here they come. The Adams boys. You know, they show up, and here comes Abel with his little flock, his, the firstlings of his flock, and the fat portions, and here comes Cain. And they're both doing the best. They're both giving to the Lord of what they have been given, of what they do. They're, they're presenting something to God. We have no prior understanding that anything was explained to them about what was expected. And all of a sudden, God looks down and goes, Oh, Abel, right on. And while Cain's over here with his bowl of fruit going, What, what about me? How, how come? I, mean, I, I brought something. The Bible tells us the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering. In other words, God didn't even look at it. He didn't even... Check it out and say, well, I, good try. But I like this better, but that, that, you know, that's something. I mean, as a father, when my children come to me with gifts on my birthday, and I've gotten some really funky stuff for my birthday, sometimes one thing is a little cooler than something else. But I'll tell you what, as a dad, everything is wonderful for my kids. But that's not what we read in this story. And it's confusing, and I begin to think, well, it's not fair. I mean, how, how can God do this? How, and how does this jive with a God that we think is perfectly just? Let me encourage you, when you read Bible stories like this one, that the assumptions you bring to the table are very important in your understanding. We have a tendency as human beings to come with skepticism, to come questioning the Lord. Even the strongest of believers among us have a tendency when we read a story like this to kind of come looking at God like, Okay, I'm not going to be happy about this until you can show me how this works. I want to encourage you to start from the place of faith. One thing, we were at this marriage conference a couple weekends ago and John Corson was speaking for it. He just, it was a wonderful, wonderful conference and he had some great things to say. One of the points he made about faith was he talked about Miriam. Remember Moses' sister Miriam? And Miriam, who, who sang a song and danced, once the people had crossed the Red Sea, they got to the other side of the Red Sea, and she pulled out the tambourine and just began to sing and dance. And you can read the praise song that, that she sang in the book of Exodus. And John Corson said, well, I always wonder why she didn't shake the tambourine and sing on the other side of the Red Sea before they went across. See, now that would be a great song. That would be a song of faith. So often we wait till we get through the sea and then we shake the tambourine. Then we believe. Once you prove it to me, God, then I'll believe. I want to encourage you as you come to Scripture to shake the tambourine on this side of the Red Sea. To believe first. And assume, okay, we're talking about God. And though maybe from my understanding it doesn't seem quite fair at first, I'm sure that it's going to be fair because this is God. And if you feel that way, by the way, you're correct. It will be fair. I want to tell you that in this story, Cain and Abel knew exactly what they were doing. That Abel knew when he brought of the firstlings and the fat portions of his flock, he knew that that's what God wanted. And Cain knew that God preferred a lamb over a fruit basket. But Cain chose to bring the fruit instead. This was no shock. This was no surprise to Cain and Abel. And Cain's anger, as we will see in a moment, was driven by the fact that he wanted to do it his way, and when God said, no, I want you to do it my way, 
Cain was angered by the whole thing. Here are some clues that they knew what they were doing. First thing, in verse 3, it tells us that it came about in the course of time. Literally, that's translated that it came about at the end of days. At the end of days. Now, we're not talking about the last days here. That phrase is used often to describe the last day of the week, the Sabbath. Now, God had not commanded the Sabbath to be kept holy. He does that in the book of Exodus later on. But he had created in six days, and on the seventh day he rested as a picture of the work week of man. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, they knew this. They were aware of this. This is something that they, that they understood. And that's why Moses, in writing this, tells us it came about in the course of time or at the end of days. This indicates day seven, Sabbath day. It indicates, folks, a day of worship. That Cain and Abel were actually coming on the appointed day to worship. Well, how do you know that they were coming to worship? Well, there's another phrase here, or word. It's, it tells us that that they brought, that uh, Abel brought of his firstlings, and Cain brought. And the word brought there specifically refers to something that's, that, that you bring to an appointed place. Okay, It's bringing to an appointed place. So we have, at the end of days, to an appointed place, what we're looking at is Cain and Abel are going to church. Now, maybe not church like we understand it, but they were going to this appointed place to give offerings to the Lord. Abel came to worship God in faith, with repentance. Because as you've already seen in Genesis chapter 3, God sacrificed an animal to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. There is already a picture of what needed to take place to cover the sin of man. That blood was needed to cover sin. Started very early, very quickly on. And that's exactly what Abel did. In faith, he took of the firstlings of his flock. And don't think that that's easy, by the way. Sacrificing an animal. It's not. Cain, on the other hand, came to worship God, not in faith, but in formality. Going through the motions. He came with religion. I know I have to give something to God, so I'm going to get something. I'm going to take this bowl of fruit, I'm going to make it look really nice. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that the sin of Adam and Eve was repeated by Cain? That Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and Cain turns around and offers fruit. How the sins of the father tend to be reflected in the sins of the kid. Well, Abel came and cried, but Cain came and cried. What do you mean Abel came and, or Cain came and, I said that wrong, like Cain came and cried, Abel came, came and cried. Cain's pride is seen in that what he brought was the work of his hands. The fruit, the stuff that he had tilled from the ground. He worked hard. And he brought this as a show of his strength as the work of his hands. Abel, on the other hand, came in tears. He came and cried. He had to kill of his flock. Now, when my mom was a little girl, she actually grew up on a farm. And she had a little calf that she loved named Chocolate Chip. Chocolate Chip was her little calf, and she'd play with it after school in the afternoons, and she fed it and took care of it. And Chocolate Chip was her calf. Well, Chocolate Chip grew up to be a pretty strong bull. And one day, she came home, and chocolate chip was not in the pen. And that night, they had steak for dinner. <laughs> now, her dad, my grandpa, promised her that he did not kill chocolate chip, but actually sold chocolate chip and then bought meat. But to this day, she is convinced that they dined on chocolate chip that night. And it wasn't an easy task. Folks, the slaughter of animals is never easy. It's never easy. 
God didn't intend for it to be easy. When a lamb was slaughtered on the Passover, it, it was a joyous occasion for the Jews in that it was a picture of salvation for them, of having their sins washed away. But it was ugly and it was brutal. Don't think it was any less than that. But God is trying to help us understand the brutality of sin. That sin is ugly. That that's where sin ends up. Folks, even before Moses and the law, animal sacrifice was understood. You may want to jot this down. If you're taking notes, it's interesting just in the first few books of the Bible how animal sacrifice is presented. In Genesis, we see that a lamb was given for a man. A lamb for a man. That Adam and Eve, a lamb was sacrificed for them. Or at least an animal of some type was sacrificed for them. We see it with, with Abel right here, sacrificing of the firstlings of his flock. And throughout this, this book, you're going to see lamb sacrifices happening. A lamb for a man. But then in Exodus, it kind of all changes. It all changes. Now you have a lamb for a family. Remember the Passover. I don't know if I mentioned this last week. This, this is amazing to me. If you, if you think about it, and you all know the story. You've all seen the Ten Commandments or, or the Prince of Egypt, you know, the Hollywood versions. Well, if you've watched those, you know that what happened on, on the night of the Passover is the Jewish people were told you need to take blood from a lamb and you need to paint it on the lintel and the doorpost of the door. If you take blood and do that, you paint it down on the doorpost and across the lintel, what do you have? You have a cross. You have a blood-painted cross. As early as that, the, the, the signature of Jesus' death was being seen in Scripture. So in Genesis, a lamb for a man. But in Exodus, now it's a lamb for a family. Then you get to Leviticus, and it's a lamb for a nation. The sacrificial lamb of Yom Kippur. A lamb for a nation. Folks, again, God is not into gore and blood. That's not the point. But he is communicating something to mankind. That sin is sickening. That it is dreadful, that it is life-taking, and that it is where we will all end up, like slaughtered lambs, if we can't turn to God and find His salvation. But what, what man didn't know was that every innocent lamb sacrificed to the Lord was a foreshadowing, or a type, of the one from the woman's seed. Genesis, a lamb for a man. Exodus, a lamb for a family. Leviticus, a lamb for a nation. And then we get to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a lamb for the entire world. Who is Jesus? John chapter 1, verse 29 tells us, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And from day one, from the get-go, God was painting a picture so that when Jesus finally came on the scene, people could understand why he was there. That he did come as the Lamb of Sacrifice. And that was the point. Well, Abel had, had the sacrifice of his lambs, and it was hard, and it was bloody, but it was what he knew, it was what Abel knew that God desired of him. Cain, like mom and dad before him, decided to do things his own way, and he brought a fruit basket. What Cain brought, he brought by his own strength and his work. And Jude 11 refers to Cain. Jude verse 11 calls, refers to the way of Cain. The way of Cain. You're going to look at the way of Cain. We'll see that a little bit more later this evening. But what Abel brought, he brought by faith. Now, you may read this and go, how do you know Abel brought this by faith? It just says Abel on his part brought the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. We hear nothing from Abel after this. Only that he was there. Only that he was present. You don't hear anything out of Abel's mouth. We have no, how can we prove, how do we know 
that Abel had faith? Well, probably the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament and vice versa. If you want to understand Scripture, go to Scripture. And so we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, which tells us the following. By faith, Abel offered to God a better, a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith. Now, we read the Bible, again, as, as skeptical human beings so often, and we say, okay, well, the Hebrew writer is saying that Abel did this by faith, and he's just trying to make a point of faith. That's all it is. Don't forget that the writer of Hebrews was inspired by the same spirit that Moses was when he wrote Genesis. Same inspiration. And there are things revealed to us that we can understand through New Testament scripture about Old Testament happenings, and this is one of them, that Abel acted in faith. Well, how do you know, that, how, how do you act in faith? Listen, the Bible does not teach blind faith. There's nowhere in Scripture where you can show that the Bible teaches that faith is blind. Like that scene of Indiana Jones in the third Indiana Jones trilogy movie, where he's, he's looking out over this cavern, and, and he has to get across to the other side, and in the little book that he's reading, it says it, it's a leap from the lion's mouth, and he says, oh, it's a leap of faith. And so what does Indiana Jones do? A stupid thing to do. He puts his foot out, and he leans forward, hoping, having faith, that something will be there. But that's not faith. That is a Hollywood picture of faith that says faith is leaping out in the abyss and hoping something catches you. Biblical faith is never blind. How do you know that, Rick? Romans 10:17. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing from what? The Word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Your faith is not leaping out into the abyss. Your faith is on something that is so rock solid that it continues to build. Abel had faith. But faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. Therefore, Abel had heard the word of God. There's no other way the Bible tells us to have faith, except through hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I believe, because of what we read in, in the New Testament, that God spoke to these boys. I think Cain and Abel had had conversation with God. I think they understood exactly what they were doing. They knew what an acceptable sacrifice would be, and Abel responded acceptably in faith. And Cain responded by doing his own thing independently. My thing. Independent Cain, thinking he could impress God. And when it didn't work, Cain became angry. Look at verse 5. It tells us that for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God had no regard. Didn't even look at it. So, we're told, Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your confidence or your countenance be lifted up? This is one of those places where it's a good thing that I'm not the Lord. Okay? Because if I was the Lord, I would have been a little upset that my righteous requirements were not fulfilled in Cain's actions. I would have said, look, you take your basket of fruit and you go do it right. Don't you come here on the day of worship messing with me, you little doofus. I created you. I can take you right out of this world. But see, God's not like that. God's not like that. What does God do? Does he get on Cain? Does he yell at him? Is he angry with him? No. He says, Cain, what's the matter, buddy? What's going on here? Why, why are you upset? And God begins to counsel Cain. He says, hey, if you do well, 
Will not your countenance be lifted up? Things will be okay. You see God expressing sensitivity and concern for Cain. He sees that Cain is crestfallen. He knows that Cain is going dark here. And so instead of reaming him out for a bad offering, he talks to him. And he says something very important that we need to hear. Hey, if you do the right thing, you'll be lifted up. Hear me on that again. If you do the right thing, you will be lifted up. Well, yeah, but... How does that jive with grace? I mean, I can't do the right thing. That's right. You can't do the right thing. But God can, and He especially will through you. Let me give you a couple of great verses for the downcast and disheartened tonight. Psalm 42, verse 5. In light of Cain, his countenance fell. He's angry. He's dark. He's frustrated. Psalm 42, 5 says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of his countenance for the help of his face when my face gets downcast when my countenance has fallen when I'm sorrowful and, and depressed and feeling sorry for myself psalmist writes hey look up to the countenance of the Lord let his face shine on you in fact one of my favorite verses Numbers chapter 6 verse 24 the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. You see, Cain here gives a heart-to-heart from God. And the Lord gets right into Cain's face with his own face, his countenance, and he says, Listen, I know your heart is angry, but look to me. Look to me and do the right thing. Listen to me. Cain, I can help you here. I've told this story before. And I see it so much with my son Hayden. But the story goes of a, of a child playing in a sandbox. And there's a huge rock in the middle of the sandbox. Somehow it got placed there, maybe by an older brother or sister. But it's there. And the child is trying to move the, the, the rock out of the box. And he can't move it. And he's getting more and more frustrated because it's just too heavy. And he's pushing and kicking and thrashing. And finally he just falls into an all-out temper tantrum. He's crying and kicking sand everywhere. And his dad has been watching from the kitchen window as the whole thing takes place. And finally he goes outside and makes his way near his, his son and, and says, Son, what's the matter? I can't move this rock. Well, have you tried everything? Yes, I've tried everything. I've tried pushing, I've tried pulling, I've tried rolling. I can't move the rock. And his father says, You haven't tried everything. You haven't asked me. You haven't asked my help. How often I've used that same phrase with my youngest son. Look, hang on a second. You haven't asked me. Let me help you. Then God's saying the same thing to Cain. Hey, let me help you, Cain. Listen to my voice. Do the right thing. And your countenance, which right now has fallen, will be lifted up. Verse 7, last part of the verse, tells us something else. God says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Interesting. God is not saying here, if you blow it, you'll burn in hell. Okay, you mess up, you're gone, you're out of here. He's saying that every wrong step we take widens the crack in the door for sin to make its way into our lives. But that's the problem with sin. And in this statement, sin is crouching here. It, it, it's at the door. That word crouching, it literally means like, like an animal, a lion, crouched down on all fours, ready to spring. 
Sin is ready to go. Sin is crouching. Sin is ready to take you on. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes, Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You see, he started as a serpent in the garden. Took that form first. But we get around to Peter in the New Testament. Peter's saying, look, he's much more than a serpent these days. He's a roaring lion. He is ready to pounce. And in Genesis 4, we see that same picture given as God is speaking with Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. It is ready to pounce on you. And he makes this interesting statement. You must master it. How can I do that? How can I master sin? I mean, come on, honestly. I've tried. It's not all that easy. Now, a legalistic perspective of Scripture would say, Yeah, yeah, we have to master it. We have to be perfect. We have to be self-righteous. We have to do everything the correct way. And if we do it all the correct way, then we will master sin. Do you realize the reason that God says to fight against sin has nothing to do with winning over sin? It doesn't have the fact that it has to do with the fact that you can overcome sin. It has to do with the fact that we allow sin to get in, to creep into our lives and to mess things up. Let me explain that a little bit further here. I've got to say this to you, and I've gotten in trouble for saying this before, but I believe with all my heart, mind, and soul that God is pro-choice. God is pro-choice. He is the original advocate of pro-choice. Now, not the pro-choice movement as we know it today. Not the whole thing that is actually not pro-choice at all. It's pro-abortion, it's pro-murder, it's pro-death. God is not pro-that, but God is pro-choice. He's the one who made the decision to give us the freedom to choose. And we see it right here with Cain. You must master it. It's your decision, Cain. I'm right here with you. I want to help you. Be careful because your countenance is falling. You're angry. I'm with you, but I'm not going to do it for you. You have to choose. You have to make a decision here on how you're going to handle your own frustration and your own sin. God's antidote for anger and bitterness is twofold. Two very simple things to do to help us deal with anger and bitterness in our lives. Number one, seek the Lord. Just seek Him. Look to His face. Seek His countenance to change your countenance or mine. And secondly, do what's right. It's so simple. Seek the Lord and do what's right. Now hear me again on this. We don't do what's right to save ourselves. That's not why we do the right thing. It's not why we, especially as Christians, why you make right choices. You don't do it for grace points. Grace is only grace if it's given freely. That's what grace is. That God has offered, He has saved us, and if we believe Him and trust in Him, we're saved. Period. So why do the right thing? Because God knows that when we seek His face and we do the right thing, our faces will shine. Kind of like Moses. Remember Moses coming down from Mount Sinai? And Hollywood still hasn't gotten this one right. You know, Charlton Heston's beard got longer and whiter every time he saw God. He just looked older. That's not what the Bible indicates happened. Man, when Moses came down the mountain, his face was lit up. It was glowing with light. So much so that it absolutely freaked out the Israelites and they made him put a veil over his face because it scared him so much. He, he's got God all over him. It's scary. He's not even really human anymore. He's glowing. People aren't supposed to glow. Not like that. I know there's some you know, makeup commercials that would say you should glow, but this is, this is a different thing here. Moses was lit up. Why was Moses lit up? Because he had been with the Lord. 
And that's what God wants in our lives. He wants us to be alive, to be lit up, because we've been with Him. Because we've spent time with Him. Because we have done what you're doing right now. Getting into the Word, you're spending time with the Lord, seeking Him, to know Him, and understand Him. So what did Cain do? Verse 8 tells us that Cain told Abel his brother, period. Now that's interesting. See, I always kind of had an assumption that Cain went right out from here and murdered Abel. That's not what happened. It tells us that Cain told Abel his brother. They had a conversation about it. He, he went to Abel and said, yeah, God didn't you know, like my offering. And he said, this is my, you know, I've got to look up and seek him and do the right thing. You know. Shares the conversation that he had with God. Later, the verse continues. The drama gets more intense. If you do not... Oh, sorry. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. See, this is what bitterness does. Is it grows inside of us. It festers inside of us. You know, when we get to that point spiritually, we begin to die. And this is what bitterness does. You may have felt this way before. When someone wrongs you in some way, or when someone bests you at something, in the same way that Abel bested Cain, Abel didn't mean anything by it. Abel wasn't trying to put his brother down. Abel was responding to the Lord. Period. And there are often times in life where we just try to do the right thing, and what you get for it is stung. You try and do what's right, and somebody finds something wrong with it and begins to pick it apart, and in reaction, you start to go, Ugh. Folks, bitterness is the way of Cain. I really think that there is a, 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 a matter of time in between where Cain told Abel about it, and then when they went out into the field. I think bitterness festered inside of Cain. He got more and more and more angry at his brother. Even though his brother hadn't done anything wrong, Cain got bitter. And the bitterness grew and grew until it resulted in a murderous, heinous act. Which is why Jesus says the following. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. He says, you know, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and I can't help but wonder if he was referring back to Cain and Abel here. If you're presenting your offering before God, you come to the altar to worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Jesus says, look, if you come to the place of worship and you're ready to worship and praise God and have that wonderful experience, stop. If you have a heart problem with a brother or sister, stop worshiping. This is one of the rare times in scripture where Jesus says, don't worship. Hold on. Wait. First, go be reconciled. Get it right with that other person. Oh, what? What's the big deal? I mean, I, especially if I haven't done anything wrong. They're the one that's wronged me. I haven't done anything. Why do I need to get it right? Because Jesus knows what bitterness does to us. It begins to affect us. It's like a sickness. It's like a cancer. Folks, the Bible is clear. The responsibility of reconciliation, no matter who's at fault, the responsibility is in your hands. It doesn't matter if I wronged the other person or they wronged me. But this is very interesting. Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, you go and be reconciled to them. 
The responsibility of reconciliation is in my hands. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And by the way, a paycheck doesn't come with that. You don't get a name tag that says, I am now a pastor of reconciliation. I went through a special class and now I am the reconciliation minister of our church. No, it is a ministry that every believer in Christ has. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, you are a minister of reconciliation. Why? Because God reconciled you first. And God wants us to behave in like manner. Namely, Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says, Be angry, yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. See, there's that crack in the door, that sin that's crouching, that's just waiting. Satan's not waiting for us to do the wrong thing. He's waiting for us to let our guard down. He's waiting for us to be angry. He's waiting for us to be bitter. Maybe we haven't even acted on the anger or the bitterness yet. But if we're there, if we're in that place emotionally, oh, Satan loves that. It's a good chance for him to pounce. Folks, again, whether the other person responds or not to my act of reconciliation is beside the point. If I reject responsibility for my brother, for my sister, if I reject that responsibility, I become bitter and bitterness kills. Bitterness kills. It destroys relationships. It certainly destroyed the relationship between Cain and Abel. Now notice that Cain in his deep bitterness does exactly what Adam and Eve did before him. He volleys excuses at the Lord and he never confesses his sin or repents. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Now God knew exactly where Abel, his brother, was. God knew exactly what was going on. Just like with Adam and Eve when he was in the garden and he said, hey, where are you guys? He knew where they were. He knew they were hiding in their sin. Where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? See, that's bitterness in action. Granted, he had murdered his brother. But folks, when we get bitter toward a person, ultimately we come to the point where we say, I don't care about you anymore. You're dead to me. I'm not your keeper. You wronged me. You hurt me. You did the wrong thing, so I'm out. I'm out. This relationship's over. You're on your own. Good luck, buddy. I'm not going to help you out anymore. I'm not going to be in a relationship with you. You hurt me, and I'm in the right here. Well, that's exactly how Cain responds. Am I my brother's keeper? Let me ask you a question here. Could Cain have been forgiven by God for murdering Abel? Yes. Absolutely. Could Adam and Eve have been forgiven by God for biting into the fruit? Yes. Why weren't they? They never asked for it. Adam and Eve. What, what happened? Remember back, Genesis chapter 3. God comes to Adam and says, what have you done? And Adam's first two words out of his mouth, the woman! <laughs> he bumps it over to her. So he goes to Eve. Eve, what have you done? The serpent! And the serpent was just to her, you know. Then we get over to Cain. What have you done? I'm not my brother's keeper. No confession, no repentance, nothing. And had Adam and Eve, and later Cain, actually confessed, God, I killed my brother. I can't believe I did this. I am so sorry. 
I don't deserve to live myself. God, the God of compassion and grace and mercy, would have found a way. He did find a way for us. His name is Jesus. But how different might the world have been if Cain had sought forgiveness? If Cain had confessed? If he had repented? Verse 10 is very interesting to me. Because as you read it, the word blood there is actually a plural form of the word. The voice of your brother's bloods is crying to me from the ground. Now that reflects something very interesting. Hebrew thought regarding death, regarding murder. And this apparently is the same even to this day. And I think I just jumped way ahead of my notes, did I? Oh, no, there it is. Jewish thought regarding murder. This phrase, if you kill one person, you kill the world. In Jewish thinking, even to this day, which, think about what this says about suicide bombings, the homicide bombings that go on. If you kill one person, you kill the world. Why? Because if you kill one person, then you kill that person's offspring by generation after generation after generation. If someone comes along and kills Hayden, my youngest, then what they are also, in effect, doing is as long as time continues after Hayden, any child that Hayden might have in the future has now been murdered. Any child that that child might have in the future has now been murdered. And we're talking countless generations. Abel's entire generation on planet Earth wiped out in one movement. If you kill one person, you kill the world. And here we see Abel's bloods crying out to God. Hebrews chapter, four, chapter 11 verse 4 tells us of a dramatic difference, by the way, between Abel's blood and Jesus' blood. Abel's blood, it tells us, though he is dead, he still speaks. And later in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24, it tells us that Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel's. So Abel's blood speaks one thing, but Jesus' blood speaks something completely different altogether. What's the difference? Abel's blood cries out, Justice. Vengeance. I have been unfairly killed. The blood of Abel as it cried out to God from the ground was a cry of justice. Father, this is not right. This is not fair. Lord, vengeance. Judgment. But Jesus' blood speaks mercy. Forgiveness. Compassion. Could Cain have been forgiven by God for murdering his brother Abel? Absolutely. John tells us in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, and this is good news, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Anything that we've done. Any sinful act. If we can just confess it, he is faithful and righteous to forgive and as I said before, how things might have been different for Cain, for Abel, for Adam and Eve, if they had just confessed and owned up to their sin. Forgiveness and mercy is and was back then available, not by Abel's blood, which is the blood of vengeance and justice, but by Jesus' blood, the blood of forgiveness and mercy. 1 John 1.7 tells us if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. So, the question we kind of need to ask here is, was Cain ever forgiven? There's no biblical indication that he was. 
Was Adam and Eve forgiven? I don't know. Now there's a thought for you. The first man ever created, will he be with us in eternity? I don't know. Possibly. I sure hope so. I hope that he and God ultimately had a conversation that, that, that bore forgiveness. I hope that Adam and Eve sought to confess to the Lord and, and to make things right. I, I don't know for sure. Will they be there? Could they have been there? Right now, the Bible does not indicate that that Cain went anywhere except his own way, his own direction. In fact, we start to see a very dramatic contrast in the rest of the chapter. The contrast is between the way of Cain and the way of the Lord. The way of Cain, referred to in Jude 11, and the way of the Lord that we see so clearly in Jesus. Look at verse 11. God responding to Cain at this point says, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Not fair. Oh, come on. Come on, I'm grounded for an entire month, Dad. That's not fair. And that's how we tend to respond to any kind of justice or judgment. It's not fair. My punishment is too hard. Folks, what's interesting about Cain's punishment is he was still alive. God had every right to kill him on the spot. I mean, blood for blood. And God chose not to. God could have wiped Cain out, but instead he allowed Cain to live. Oh, there was a curse levied to be sure. But God shows justice and mercy. In fact, more mercy than I can even understand here. Verse 14, Cain is still crying. He says, Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And so the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain that no one finding him would slay him. What was that? I don't know. Some kind of a mark, some kind of a, a sign, but that people saw Cain, that if anyone got angry with Cain in the same way that he was angry with Abel, they realized that they couldn't touch him. God protected Cain. Does that sound like a punishment that's too hard to bear? He was driven out, but even after being driven out, the protection of God was on him. It's unbelievable. Now, look at Cain's attitude. You, you begin to start to understand here the way of Cain. Verse 14 where he says, You've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. Literally, what that says is, From your face I will hide. I'm not going to seek your face anymore. I'm going to hide from your face. I've been driven out, and from this day forward... I am not looking to you anymore. You see, Cain's countenance, which had fallen before, now Cain has determined he's not even going to lift his countenance to look at the Lord another time. I will hide my face from you. they punish me? Fine. I'm out of here. Interesting that verse 15 says that God will take vengeance on anyone who tries to kill Cain sevenfold. Seven times. That brings up some other seven-time judgments in Scripture. One, of course, the tribulation. 
Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 and Revelation both indicate the length of time for the tribulation when God will pour out his wrath on an unrepentant Christ-rejecting world as seven years long. It's still, it's unbelievable to me that God would consider protecting Cain after this. That he would care enough about Cain to put a mark on him of protection. And I ask the question, why does he do it? Why does God do what I know I wouldn't have done? Well, the answer is simple. God is about mercy and forgiveness. That's God's heart. And as long as Cain had breath, as long as there was opportunity for Cain maybe to realize what he had done, confess it and seek repentance, God was willing to give him a second chance. Which is why so much crime seems to go unpunished today. We watch things happen in the world around us and go, God, why do you allow this to go on? Not understanding that the heart of the Father is even to the criminal to say, because he might repent. Because he might turn to me and be forgiven. Because he might, just like you, someday, somehow, find mercy. Might find my grace. So God gives Cain of Arc saying, this one still belongs to me. Judgment or mercy is mine to give and mine to give exclusively. Verse 16 tells us, and this is a stunning verse, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That's not easy to do. Because God is omnipresent. God's everywhere. But Cain left his presence. Remember Cain said from this day forward, I'm going to hide my face from you. And he did that. He went out from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod. Which is what happens when you go out from the presence of the Lord. You settle in the land of Nod. You fall asleep. Your life becomes kind of meaningless and sleep focused and you know you don't really live anymore. You stop being alive. You nod off. Nod was east of Eden. Where's Nod? I'm not really sure. There are, there are folks who say uh, that possibly it was China. In fact, there's some good reasons to believe that the land of Nod ultimately was or became China. But the land of, of Nod literally means the land of wandering. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and began to just wander. No purpose, no direction, no meaning, no connection to the Creator. Well, it tells us, verse 17, that Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Where did Mrs. Cain come from? I know that's why you're here tonight. I know that's the question. Have you ever heard that question asked by anybody else? Anybody said to you, hey, what about Mrs. Cain? Where did she come from? I mean, come on. What's amazing is that people actually think they've stumbled on something new that'll trip you up and prove the Bible to be wrong. Ah, I got one for you. What about Mrs. Cain? Huh? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. People just think they're brilliant, that this has never been thought of before. Where did Mrs. Cain come from? The answer is not difficult. How many children do you think Adam and Eve could have in 930 years? Tradition says 40. 40? That's a lot of kids. How many children did their children's children have in 930 years? Or their children's children's children? Folks, the, the propagation of the human race was very fast and very widespread. And when you have eight, nine hundred years to have children, you're going to produce quite a few. Now I'm imagining around year 700, Eve was pretty darn worn out. 
along with all the other children who are now having children. But it's not at all inconceivable. By the way, you might say, well, wait, that's intermarriage and that's not good. Well, we do that with dogs. We, we interbreed, you know, dogs. And the, the new ones, the new breeds that come out, like, like my dog Rudy is a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, and it's still somewhat of a new breed. They're intelligent little dogs. They, they're very sturdy. They do very well. Irish setters are stupid. They didn't start out. Does anybody have an Irish setter, by the way? Do you? Oh, okay. They're dumb dogs. They're beautiful. I loved. I've always. I had always wanted an Irish setter until Cheryl and I really looked into them and saw how dumb they really are. Why? Because they've been bred so much. You get down the line, and ultimately they just start to just. It just messes things up. Which is why later on in Leviticus 21 verse 4, God finally did say, "No more intermarriage." But it wasn't until that point that it was said to be wrong. God drew a line in the sand at that point and said, okay, enough's enough. We don't want any more intermarriage because it's getting ugly. It's getting scary out there. Not to mention the fact that the sin of mankind was so intense by that time that God needed to give some direction to, to make some lines. But at the time of Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, other children born, there were plenty of children that were born. And what was the phrase that God the, the memory verse, if you will, that God gave Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So for Cain to find a wife is not an impossibility. Right out of his own family line. Maybe a sister, maybe a niece. It's not a big deal. Not difficult to answer. But you know what? It is one of those questions that's asked for one reason and one reason alone. People who ask, what about Mrs. Cain? Now, if you've asked that, I'm not getting on to you about it. If you've just kind of wondered curiously, that's one thing. But many people who ask, what about Mrs. Cain, are not looking for an answer. They're looking to raise doubt. Well, there's a hole in your scripture right there. Mrs. Cain. The Bible must have some flaws. It's all about raising doubt. We talked about that pretty extensively last week. I think there's a better question than what about Mrs. Cain. It's the question the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16, and that's, what must I do to be saved? We're so focused on trying to prove this book wrong instead of asking the question that will prove our lives right. What must I do? Well, Cain's response to God's mercy is in essence to exalt his own name. Look at what happens. They have a son named Enoch. And this is not the same Enoch that you'll hear about later of the line of Seth. This is a different Enoch. And Cain built a city and he called the name of the city Praise the Lord at... No, sorry. He called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his own son. Great, Cain. Enoch means dedicated. The Enoch that we will see later, there's an Enoch who walked with the Lord and was no more. The first raptured person. And that's very cool to see. This is not the same one. This is a different kind of dedication. You see, the Enoch who was raptured, his life was dedicated to the Lord, to the way of the Lord. The Enoch of Cain was dedicated to the name of Cain. You see, Cain built this great city and he called it Enoch. Probably something like Enoch of Cain. Why? To protect the family name. To keep, he builds a city and basically calls it Enoch Hortus. Sorry, I thought that was kind of funny. But his son and offspring, this, this is the way that Cain thinks. His name matters. Let's keep the family line out there. Let's make sure we know. You know, God may have driven me out and I've hidden my face from him, but now I've got a son. And now my line is going to continue. And yay, Cain, and go Enoch, and look at my family line. And that's the way of Cain. My name matters. Wrong, Cain. 
There's only one name that matters. Philippians 2.10 tells us that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says there is, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Cain, Enoch cannot save your name. Only God can. And only by his own name. Verse 18 tells us that Enoch was born of Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Interesting family line here. I want to give you just some names, or some meanings of these names, because I think it indicates for us the direction of the way of Cain. It shows us where Cain's line was headed, where it went. Irad, Irad means fugitive or wild ass what it means. Mahujael means literally, if you break it down, Mehu, blot out, Yah, the Lord, is God, El. In other words, Mehu, Mahujael's name means blot out that the Lord is God. Interesting. This is the direction of Cain's family line. A fugitive, someone who blots out that the Lord is God, Mahushael. Mahushael means that man is strength and they are dead who are of God. See where this is going? First, I'm going to go out and I'm going to hide my face from the Lord. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live an independent life. I'm living for me now. It's Rick City. It's Enoch Hortus. I'm going to live there. I'm going to build a lifestyle, a world, and this is going to be my way, not God's way. I'm a fugitive who will blot out that the Lord is God, man is strength, and they are dead who are of God. A lot of people saying that in America today, by the way. People of God are dead. They're right-wing loonies. They're fanatics. They don't know what they're talking about. That way is history. That's an old way. It's archaic. It's not modern. And you get finally down to Lamech, whose name means poor and lowly, which is where you end up. You see, that's the degeneration of the generation of Cain. It goes from bad to worse. The family tree is rotting in its core. Verse 19 tells us that Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Now, let me tell you, in the Bible, something as a student of the Bible you need to be aware of is the principle of first mention. Anytime something is mentioned for the very first time, pay attention to it, because you can learn something unique or interesting. This is the first mention of polygamy. This is the first time it's happened now. And remember, Adam wasn't given Eve and her sister Sarah. It was just Adam and Eve. But now we get down to Lamech and he takes two wives, Ada and Zillah. And it's very interesting what their names mean. Ada literally means ornament. Oh, beautiful Ada. An ornament. It's the kind of woman that, that Lamech could take around and show off. You know, She's the kind of woman that would make him look better. I have that kind of wife. You know, makes me look better. She's an ornament. Well, then he marries another woman, takes a second wife, Zillah. And her name could mean two things. Shady or shabbiness. Ornament, shabbiness. Beautiful, eh. Lovely, alright. The thing about Zilla, and, and I don't know, I mean, this is totally reading into it, but the shady side of her name. It's also seductress. Like maybe a possibility here is that 
Lamech was seduced by this Zillah. She ended up kind of becoming one of his wives too, along with Ornament, his beautiful other wife. Now he's got this seductress, this shady, this shabby woman. What's the point? Understand that nothing is in Scripture by accident. God's Word, written by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is not accidental, coincidental. Things don't just show up and go, oh, that's interesting, let's move on. God is trying to teach us word by word, line by line in the Scripture. And here in the first mention of polygamy, the Bible's giving us, I believe, a graphic picture of a critically important truth. Look at the two names of the two wives. Beautiful, ornament, shabby. So Lamech has ornament and shabby living, living with him. And Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, you can't serve two masters. Well, why not, Jesus? What happens if I try to serve two masters? Well, you'll either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You know what, for those of you who are married, and, and for those who aren't, but, but will one day be, if you attempt to develop another opposite sex relationship outside of your marriage, apart from your spouse, your spouse will begin to look shabbier and shabbier. Your spouse will lose his or her luster. You will be with that other person, that secret relationship, that affair, and in the meantime, your spouse, no matter how hard he or she tries, will just start to not be as attractive anymore. And here we have, way back with Ada and Zilla, a picture of that, a portrait, a type. The ornament and the shabby one. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the second, or you're going to love the other one and hate the first one. You can't love them both. It's clear, it's obvious, and Jesus said later on, he said, this is why from the very beginning, God ordained it, that it should be one man, one woman for one life. That's it. I think about the, uh, the analogy of the Kellogg's Variety Pack cereal. You may have heard this one. You know, people say, well, I see you getting married and everything, but man, let's say for your whole life you're eating out of the Kellogg's Variety Pack of cereal, breakfast cereal, and you get a different kind every morning, and it's all the, you know, with the Apple Jacks, and I love those, and the Sugar Pops, and the different kinds. And then one morning you wake up, and you have to choose your favorite one, but that's all you get for the rest of your life. People actually use that analogy to say that, that marriage is, you know, kind of archaic and outdated. You only get one flavor the rest of your life. Now, I, I've gone in and out of seasons where, like, Apple Jacks was the one. And after a while, you just kind of get burned out on Apple Jacks. And people try to liken marriage to breakfast cereal, and I'm sorry it doesn't work. Here's the reality. Here's the truth in marriage. It gets better and better and better and better as long as the focus is on Jesus in the marriage. It gets better. I've been married 17 years. Cheryl, this morning, I, I, I got a boast on her. Just for a second, and I'll take this off the tape later, but just between us. I went in this morning, and Cheryl was doing kids' worship. And it was the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, she does preschool. She teaches preschool. And I don't get to see her working with the kids a lot. I see her work, working with my kids. But I walked in there this morning, and I just stood, and I watched her leading worship, and I thought to myself, she has never looked more beautiful. She has never been more wonderful. I have never been more proud of my wife. Both 17 years, the same cereal. <laughs> and it's getting better, and better, and better. And that's God's plan. That's what a true, healthy marriage does. It gets, it gets better. It gets sweeter. It gets more ornamental as long as I don't mess it up with the shabbiness of my own sin. 
There is something innately given to the human soul, I am absolutely convinced, that makes for relationships that deepen with time. You see it in your friendships as well, by the way. That friend that you've known for year upon year upon year, 10, 20 years down the line, and you find out that you just have a depth of relationship. Uh, this is why eternity excites me so much. Because in eternity, we get to know each other forever. Without all the things that bug us about each other right now. That's all taken out. And for the rest of eternity, we are going to have relationships with each other that just get better. That's what God wants for us. It's a picture of the amazing grace of God. Well, let's, let's read on. This rotting family tree of Cain, verse 20, now tells us that Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Verse 22. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. So Jabal gives us a picture here of those who dwell in tents and have livestock begin to spread out and, and have some kind of... I think it's a picture of materialism. Here's a guy who is now making, making it for himself. Kind of a picture of capitalism. Cal, see, livestock, cow, Sometimes you try way too hard. Jubal brings us a different picture. We have, we have Jabal who gives us a picture of material wealth. Now we have Jubal who gives us a picture of pleasure by entertainment. This is the guy who spends his life. He's the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. And the indication here is he was the first one who actually made a living at it. That he was about pleasurable music. So we have materialism and we have pleasure by entertainment. And then along comes Tubal Cain. Well, what does Tubal Cain do? He is a forger of all implements of bronze and iron. What do they use bronze and iron for? War. This guy was forging weapons. This is where the way of Cain leads. Materialism, pleasure, war, like things. By the way, it's interesting to me, I just discovered this this last week, but it wasn't until David's day, it was not until King David, and then more so under Solomon, that the people of Israel entered an iron age. Did you know that? They didn't have skill in working with iron. Up until David, they... they, they had some skills with some metals, but their Iron Age actually was entered in the time of David. Before that, God's battles were all won with things like trumpets and pitchers and torches and smooth stones. And I think that's so cool. God doesn't need the weapons of mankind to do his work. And Israel didn't apparently have them at all. Well, this is the way of Cain. Do you get the picture? Cain says, I'm going to hide my face from you, God. I'm going out of here. I am now going to go into the land of Nod, the land of wandering. And he went out from the presence of the Lord. And this is what Cain has to show for it. A way that is not of God. A way that is, well, it's the way of the world. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And now we come to the most brilliant picture, I think, of the way of Cain. Verse 23. Which is called, by the way, the Song of the Sword. Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zilla, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, 
and a boy for striking me. And if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So along comes Lamech, and right down Cain's family line, he goes the way of Cain, and he murders just like Cain. And this is where it all goes. This is where it's all headed, in the way of Cain. By the way, did you know what the final straw was in God sending the flood? The last straw, the last thing that finally it tipped the scales and God said, that's it, and he punched holes in the water canopy and he let the flood come rushing in. What was that one thing? Genesis 6.13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. It was violence. You know one of the hottest movies out right now is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre redone along with Kill Bill which is supposedly the most I haven't seen it violent movie that has even been made I hear the blood and the gore and it is just unbelievable and yet people are coming out of movies like Kill Bill and going yeah but it was really cool it was bloody oh it was bloody Ooh, but it was great it was a great movie and God destroyed the earth for violence like that and we say well it's just a movie still violence well it's just Hollywood magic yeah our brains are sitting there taking in Hollywood magic while people's arms are getting chopped off and knives going through their faces and people are being murdered and blood splattered across the screen and we think oh, it's just the movies I'm not sure that it's just the movies to God I'm not so convinced the song of the sword I have killed a man and you know what's interesting one last thing on Hollywood how can Hollywood oppose war have you noticed the loudest voices anti-war, and, and I'm not pro, making a pro or against war message here, but the loudest anti-war people happen to be in the bloodiest movies. I don't get that. It makes no sense. Does anyone else? I mean, you watch that and you go, okay, Ben. Unbelievable. Well, a note on verse 24. Lamech says that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, this is a haughty statement. Then Lamech will be avenged 77-fold, or literally 70 times 7. Give me a favor. Flip in your Bibles real quickly to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're just about done here, folks. Verse 21. I'm just going to read all the way down to verse 35, so just follow along. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now Peter's proud of this statement. He's thinking, this is, this is big here. I'm growing, Lord. I'm better than I was. Now, instead of just forgiving someone one time, I'm starting to get this forgiveness thing. How often should I do this? Seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. What Lamech intended for his protection, vengeance, justice, Jesus turns it around. Same phrase and says, no, that's how many times you should be forgiving people. It's a, a phrase, a number that indicates endlessly. 
70 times 7. You never stop forgiving someone. But they have wronged me over and over and over. When does it stop? It doesn't. You keep forgiving. You keep forgiving. Jesus says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owned him, 10,000 talents was brought to him. And by the way, 10,000 talents, that's roughly 15 years of work. That's 15 years of wages. This guy was in debt up to his eyeballs. And so he was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, verse 25, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. He laid himself out flat. And he said to him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Ever get deep into credit card debt and then suddenly you get out? It's wonderful not to have any debt, to be free from it. And this is what happened. And this slave was so excited and so happy and so freed. Look at what he does. Says the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about a day's wage. And seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And the slave said, You know what? This, this reminds me of what happened with my Lord. And it reminds me so much that I'm going to do the same thing for you that my Lord did for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Stop reading that for a minute. What happened? His fellow slave fell to the ground, Have patience with me, but he was unwilling. Oh. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not, and by the way, let me just interject verse 32, I forgave you the debt because you pleaded with me. It's a picture of confession. It's all that it takes. Plead with the Lord. Cain, just say you're sorry. Just tell him, yes, you did it. Yes, you were wrong. Yes, you lost complete control of yourself. Yes, you murdered your brother. And even that sin is forgivable. Jesus goes on in the story and he says, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, as the Lord will be, handed him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed to him. And Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Forgiving a brother. Now that is the way of the Lord. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, cleansing. That, that's the way of the Lord. The way of Cain is avenge. It's vengeance. I'm avenged 77 times. Anyone who tries to come up against me, ah, they'll be avenged. I'll just take them out. And in his bravado, Lamech shows us where the way of Cain ends up. Verse 25 tells us finally now the way of the Lord. That Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and she named him Seth. Seth means appointed. She named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And don't miss the tragedy of the life of Eve. 
They'll miss a mother now who has watched her child kill her child. This is a woman who is experiencing great pain. Verse 26 is interesting to me. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In this chapter, Moses, the writer of Genesis, I believe, takes us down a pretty dark path. We see this whole story of Cain and Abel, these, the sibling rivalry, the first picture of sibling rivalry in Scripture. We see the murder of Cain. We see that Cain's family line just gets darker and uglier until the same exact thing that Cain does is repeated by his own offspring. But at the very end of the chapter, we're given this tiny little ray of hope in the midst of all this darkness. This beautiful picture. You see, Moses takes us away now from Cain's line and takes us to another lineage, one that is beautiful. It says that uh, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that phrase, call upon, is literally to be called by. At this point, there were some people in Seth's family line who now were called by the name of the Lord. You know what's cool? That's us. Anyone who says, hey, I'm a Christian, you're called by the name of the Lord. That's who you are. It's what gives your life meaning and purpose and direction. It's your identity. It's your appointment. Enosh was appointed, or, or Seth, I'm sorry. Seth was appointed. And my appointment is the same as Seth's appointment. What's that? To be called by the name of the Lord. Because that's where meaning and purpose and, and direction comes from. That's where my eternal salvation comes from. Not the name, like we talked about with Cain, but the name of the Lord that I can be called by. A Christian. It's who I am. Number 624. I leave you with this verse again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And may we be people who go the way of the Lord and not the way of Cain.